Good morning, I'm Morgan Stopa, and our reading today is from Matthew 6. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed by like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more, much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of God. How's everybody doing? Okay, let's say you each had a pen and a piece of paper, and I could say, take a second and, and write down things you're anxious about. Okay? Remember I said just a second. It's 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Raise your hand if you would have something you could put on a piece of paper that maybe you're anxious about. Okay, everybody, keep your hand up. Everybody look around the room. Okay. Raise your hand if you think it would take you longer than 10 seconds if I said make a, a fuller list. All right, again, everybody look up. Uh, age range here is great. There's lots. Everybody, basically everybody represents. So this morning, we continue our series, our summer series, Your Church and Our Church, Doing, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the Summer on the Mount, um, and we're talking about anxiety, something really, really important, and something really, really big going on right now. Um, I think if we, I'd done that three years ago, everybody would have had a few things, but the volume would have been a lot lower. You might have had something as a six, not as many things, maybe your 11s. And uh, as I come, I'm... I'm I'm burdened to cover this well. If you remember, I was here a few weeks ago and we talked about righteousness, and I said, I think I may have bitten off a little more than I can chew, because I'm going to try to talk about this big phrase, righteousness in the Bible. And now I'm talking about anxiety, so I'm chewing more food than I can eat all the time. And I really want to teach this well, and I know lots of us are in really significant dark places, or if you're not, you might know somebody who is. Um, I had several conversations this week with people who were just crippled by anxiety and depression. And I had the chance to be at a funeral of a, a former InterVarsity student of mine on Friday in Winston-Salem who died unexpectedly. And I was thinking, okay, his, his widow and his high school age kids were with us. What would I say? Because we believe this, what we've been singing about is true, but I... I don't want to be trite on something this important, so I'm going to teach about this passage. I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions, and at the end, I'm going to share a couple of stories, because I, I actually think that maybe the most important thing you'll hear in this are the stories. And I know that we should teach on this because Jesus put it right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He thought it was important enough for us to cover. So I hope you have a Bible and can maybe open it on your phone or in your lap 
and turn to Matthew 6, the passage you just heard read. Before we do that, let's just review a little bit again. We're in this Sermon on the Mount. It really sort of started in chapter 4, way back when we met outside, back in those days when we were worried about COVID. Um, because Jesus was coming saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, of course, he's pulled us together, the, those of us who are interested and curious about following him, or maybe have already decided to follow him, and he's teaching us about the kingdom. This is how my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is different. And he's pulling back the curtain, right, to give us a window into heaven. It's a little bit like um, many of us were probably together during this series in Lent on Revelation. And if you remember in that series, we said what, what Revelation is doing, the revelation of Jesus to John is giving us a window into the unseen world and into the future. It's the future breaking into the world now. This is what is going on and will happen. And it's also giving us a window into the unseen world now, into the present. And that's a lot of what's happening here in this sermon. Jesus is giving you and I a window into, hey, in heaven, this is what life will be like. Blessed will be those who have mourned, for they will be comforted. And blessed will be those who are peacemakers and are peacemakers they will know mercy. That's what the unseen world will be, is breaking in through Jesus. And that's true, again, as we look at this particular topic this morning. When I was here a few weeks ago, again, we talked about righteousness, the sense of we are to be committed and dedicated to pursuing righteousness. That's what it means to be a follower of this Jesus in this kingdom. And we talked about how there's a fourfold set of relationships that are broken, right, with God, ourselves, our neighbors, and the world. And to seek his righteousness first, you heard that at the end of the passage this morning, is to dedicate ourselves, to give our energy to rebuilding, to restoring as God intends us to do, those kinds of relationships. And last week you heard my friend and our, my colleague Chris Lugo talk to you about prayer. Right? In, G, in chapter 6, Jesus has moved and he's talking about both our private life with God and the tendency we have to make those little private things, public things to get affirmation, right? He talked about particularly like fasting and praying and giving in the ancient Israel world of how people would do those. The Pharisees particularly do those publicly. Ooh, look at me, giving. Oh, my big gift, you know, as I come. So as we go to the end of chapter 6, you could really see the verses 19 to 34. You heard the second section of that read. It's one unit in two parts. And Jesus in the first part is talking about the problem of materialism, and he's addressing money. He says you can only serve one of two. You can't serve. You're going to see God or money. And then in the shift, he's going to talk about the problem of worry in our paragraph. And he is concerned about worry and you and I being anxious because he touches on it three times in these few verses you heard read. Verse 25, verse 31, verse 34. So it's clear Jesus intends for his followers to know a life free or freer from anxiety and worry. Now, I don't believe that we'll fully know that freer life until we're in heaven with the Lord and he returns and he pulls us into these right, righteousness in a full way. But I do believe he calls you and I to learn what it means to live more and more free, which is great, right? Raise your hand. If you would like to live a life free from worry. Hey, so you and Jesus want the same thing. But you and I often perceive the way that's going to happen, that the means we use to get there are going to be different, right? Because we would say, hey, Jesus, that is so great. So glad you want that. Hey, here's my way to do that. I have a great plan. I bet everybody here has a plan whether they know it or not. 
My life, fill this, if you filled in this sentence, again, this would be good conversation with friends, parents and kids, spouses, roommates, small group if you're meeting in the summer. To answer this question, hey, Jesus, my life would be free from anxiety if dot, dot, dot. And how would you fill that in? I actually think you could tie that to the Beatitudes. Because remember we said you could make your own Beatitudes. We subtly follow our own all the time. Blessed are those who, and we fill in the gap, right? And I bet the blessed Beatitude you might create is going to answer the question of what you think your life would be graded to free you from worry. Blessed are those who make a lot of money because their lives will be free from worry. Blessed are those who pay off their mortgage because their lives will be free from worry. Blessed are you. But what we see in our lifetime, and if you study the world and you look at the front page, you realize, well, gosh, there are people who get those things and have those things that you think would be a beatitude that don't feel blessed at all. There are people who will get into Harvard and they'll still know anxiety. There are people who will be millionaires or billionaires, still know anxiety. There are people who will be Ordained late clergy who will be full of anxiety. And of course, it's so timely to look at this because the last 18 months have been so hard. If you do, I did a quick search yesterday on the New York Times, and I just typed in anxiety. 20 times since July 2nd, there have been articles that touch on anxiety in some way. The topics include things like how to love adult children who might be struggling with anxiety. Alcohol and how it's sort of spreading out as a means to cover, like it used to be this, you might drink because you're feeling stress or anxiety here, but now they're watching it spread. Several articles on Simone Biles and her own struggle during the Olympics. The climate, particularly in light of all the fires around the world. There's a whole swath of election officials quitting because of the anxiety they feel because their job has been so questioned because of the elections the last year. Like alcohol, there's articles on marijuana and using marijuana for your anxiety. There's an article on what do you do if your spouse is a worrier and you're not, and they're bringing their anxiety into your space. There's an article on insomnia and anxiety. And there's an article on, this is my favorite, though I would never read it um, because it doesn't interest me, on how going to a yarn store can be a place of healing if you feel anxiety. <laughs> All you knitters. Just search anxiety. It's right there in the New York Times. Notice in those topics, I didn't even have to touch on COVID or mass for the fall. Because of being on the phone with a number of other pastors this week, like Johnny, as we talked about mass, the thing that he just shared with you and kids and you guys meeting in a school, the, the nuance of that. And then being at this funeral on Friday and seeing old friends from Roanoke and Asheville and Chapel Hill and Raleigh, I can tell you every parent in those two states that I talk to is wrestling with the fall and mask and how it'll affect their kids and will they be in person or not or masks or not. And almost all of them say, well, we'll just see what happens. And underneath that, I think for all of us, is the steady drumbeat. You know, does Jesus really care about this? Does this sermon we've been studying all summer now about righteousness and mourning and peacemaking touch on things like the anxiety you and I may feel this morning? And I want to assure you, yes, he cares, and yes, it does. And I want to just focus on four things. 
First, I want to encourage you to notice the beginning of the paragraph, which again goes back to verse 19 and how Jesus says, therefore, therefore. Whenever a paragraph in Scripture starts that way, it's pulling in from what's just happened. It's like in a story someone says, meanwhile, because, you know, there's other things happening I should understand. This passage starts with an important word, with this important word, it means that what's coming before is informing what we're hearing now and should give us understanding. And what Jesus has just been talking about before our paragraph is in relation to worship. He's talking about money, but his real breakdown of the issue of money is about worship and who we serve. And what he's saying here in relation to anxiety is the same thing he said about money. Anxiety begs a question on who we worship. He's saying, in light of worship and who you worship, which we are all created to do, you are going to worship something, and you're probably going to worship something you believe will make you feel less anxious. Nobody goes around and says, I want to find a God or an idol that makes me feel more anxious. What Jesus has just highlighted, though, is, hey, there's this other beckoning of worship, this other promise of freedom from anxiety, and it's the world's religion, typically, and it's financial success, money. If you have more of it, you will not be anxious. And you and I are bombarded with images of success this way. I, one commentator had a great phrase, we live in an acquisition economy. Again, watch the Olympics. How many of you saw a car during the Olympics? You thought, oh, if I I'd like to drive that car. And how many of you thought, not only if I drove that car, I would be cooler if I drove that car? That car's not breaking down like my car. My kids might be safer if I had that car. But we probably didn't ask, Can I do I really need that car? Go to Tyson's. These are beautiful malls, stunning malls. Stores that are closing in these stunning malls. And what are those stores typically saying? Shop here. You'll not have anxiety. Buy this now. You'll not have anxiety. Own this now. You'll look better, feel better. They don't typically say, hey, we're selling stuff to clothe you. We don't want you naked. It's made really well. You need to own some. You're growing. You need bigger. You guys especially need You grow out of stuff, blah, blah, blah. They don't market to us that way. School here in Northern Virginia, which we've touched on a lot, attend here or take this program, get your IB diploma, Take the AP test, apply to these schools, look the list. You won't, be, you won't have anxiety. I wish we could tell you we don't do with Christian schools, but we do. I wish I could tell you that having worked with college students for years from public and private schools, I wish I could tell you that parents didn't send their kids to Christian schools to protect them because they think if they did that, they'll be free from anxiety. But people graduate from Wheaton and still have anxiety. My two parents went to Wheaton. I, my, I love my mom and dad, but occasionally they were anxious about stuff. Ever buy anything online and then get emails tasked to you? I don't know if you know, but Old Navy curates stuff just for me. Because they say, this is just for you. Summer clearance, big blowout, Labor Day. Ever look at Instagram or Facebook and see someone with a look or a style or a house or a purse or a pair of those new Jordans and you think, oh, I would like that. 
And probably you like that because it, you, it, it, you feel like that will make me less anxious. Now, I'm not talking about dealing with poverty and if you need clothing and wanting to be provided for. And there's a whole other sermon on understanding this in relation to the world. But as we consider our worries and our anxieties, we have to first, Jesus is saying, consider our worship. So, who do we worship? And if you're struggling with anxiety this morning, the first thing I'd encourage you to do is not to kick yourself around the block. If I was really a good Christian, I wouldn't be anxious. It's not true. Jesus is, remember, the first line of this sermon, you must pray every day or blessed are the poor in spirit. So if you're here and you're able to say, dear God, I am so nervous or anxious or worried about this. I'm so poor in spirit about this. And you are blessed because you're doing the right thing with it. And what Jesus is saying is sing and pray and ask God for help. And we'll cover that more at the end. You can even note the early church didn't get it right. We read from Philippians 2. If you go to Philippians 4, what is Paul teaching the Philippians? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. There's a reason he's telling the Philippian church, which Paul loved and was sort of one of the few rock star churches in the New Testament letters. Paul's not angry with them, but even they are anxious. They're closer to Jesus. He was only crucified 30 years before. My gosh, how, come, how could you doubt? Paul's right there. Heck, they might have even met Peter. He's still strolling around the ancient Middle East then too. Oh. Well, we're frail, finite, and apt to faint, and we need help to be reminded of what and who we worship. So first, remember the therefore. The therefore pulls you to ask, what am I worshiping? Then second, what does Jesus mean here? My second point, what does he mean, don't be anxious? Should, should I ignore all of life on earth? You can go to another New Testament letter, and people in the Thessalonian church were taking some of what Jesus taught to assume, I don't really need to worry about life. Jesus is going to come back. And there are sort of these Thessalonians, some of them are living off the grace and gratitude of others and the giving of others, and they're just like, I'm just going to kick it till Jesus comes back. So we often have had polar extremes, right? You can be hyper-anxious, workaholic, over-busy, which is sort of what we esteem here in this part of the world. Or you can be like hyper-Thor in the Affinity War, right? Like he's getting fat, drinking beer, lazy. Is Jesus advocating laziness because I don't need to worry? No. Jesus is not advocating laziness. In the words of Martin Luther, God wants nothing to do with the lazy. So if you're using laziness as a distraction or a, a way to soothe your anxiety, stop doing it. The Bible encourages us to be prudent and wise and savvy to work and to save. Here's Proverbs 30, 25. The ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. You don't look at the world that's broken and fallen and go, I'm just not going to do anything. You go, oh, what can I do? How can I be smart? How can I invest? How can I work hard? How can I take the gifts that God's given me and learn to use them to pursue righteousness in all kinds of ways? Is Jesus, if since he's saying yes to work, not to laziness, is he then saying we should work ourselves to the bone? Is God tired and does he need me to work myself to the bone that way? Because God needs a break on the weekend. To which we would say, well, do you mean 
Jesus the Savior, who clearly kept the Sabbath in the Gospels, he's telling us to work ourselves to the bone? Nope. <laughs> no. But again, what, maybe more pointedly, what does Jesus mean? Does Jesus say care about this life? Maybe he wants us to not really be too attached to some of these things. He doesn't want you attached, but he does know you have bills like rent and mortgage and gas and food. Jesus lived here. Jesus worked here. Jesus had deadlines here. Jesus had to allocate resources here. Jesus was the incarnational Savior. He lived here to be able to speak to you and I from really what it's like. And just a few verses before this, he encouraged us to pray. And what are, what's one of the things he told us to pray? Lord, give us our daily bread. So he, he knows you and I are going to need to eat. So clearly he cares. And clearly we're to be wise and prudent. And what he is emphasizing, this is John Stott, is that to become engrossed in material comforts is a false preoccupation. It's the worry, it's the anxiety, particularly as we think about tomorrow. If you read commentators on this, they so stress the today part of this passage. Jesus, daily bread, he's giving you a subtle clue. The worry about tomorrow. Think about the things you're worried about and how many of them are really about what might happen tomorrow. Not will happen, you're not sure it'll happen, but the anxiety that comes up. Jesus believes you and I have sacred value and to be engrossed in anxiety about clothes and food and cars is dehumanizing. It strips you of the value you've been given by God to be overly concerned about what you will wear and what you will eat. It re reduces you. It's reductionistic. That's all you are. It makes you an animal. Many of us over the last few years probably have had foxes run through our neighborhoods. Right? How many of you have seen a fox in a weird part of the world, right? Like, what are those foxes dedicated to? Finding food and a place to sleep. What Jesus is saying is, are you only to God, my father, a fox? So he's forcing us to interrogate our anxiety. Why am I anxious? What makes me anxious? Who am I worshiping? What beatitude have I created for myself that provokes this anxiety? Because Jesus wants you and I free from that. So how? How to be free from that? He, first, he, he's going to challenge you with a driving thesis in your mind. It's going to start in your mind, as Paul writes. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Be transformed. This sermon is to grip you in the hand of the Father and to change your mind. Again, repent, for the kingdom is near. What does the kingdom imply? There is a new king, and you belong to him. In heaven, I think we all believe there'll be no anxiety. People who don't know Jesus will still believe in the, your neighborhood and circle of influence this week. If you ask them, do you think there's anxiety in heaven? They're all going to say no. Why? Is there going to be no anxiety because you and I in heaven will get the latest clothes from pick your store, Banana Republic or Old Navy or Brooks Brothers, or you get tailored clothes every day? 
Is that really what we think heaven is? Doesn't that reduce heaven to something dehumanizing? No, in heaven, there'll be no anxiety because heaven will have really broken into our finite selves and we will be in righteousness with the Father, right relationship, resting in his provision for us. Jesus' main point is living in anxiety is theologically incorrect. Because God, his Father, is the creator and sustainer of the world. And he's, he's trying to grip your attention and say, it's not hard to see. Look at the... Look at the birds. Consider the birds. Cons- then if you can't see, it's like, look at the flowers. Jesus is taking the fact that you and I as Anglicans say the creeds and pushing it all the way down into the belly of your heart where you are most afraid and saying, wait, if you say we believe And one God, creator of heaven and earth, it should beg a question about why you're anxious. Because you belong to the creator and sustainer of the universe. Look at the birds, the grains, even the foxes in your neighborhoods. John Stott, in his succinct British way, says, Jesus here is saying worry is incompatible with the Christian faith. God created us. He is our Father who loves us, and we matter to him. And I would add that what Jesus is sort of screaming to his people is, and hey, I'm going to die for you. One of the most stunning parts of the Lord's Prayer, the little paragraph you looked at last week, is the intro. Our Father, who art in heaven, Jews were known for praying. Think about something you are known for. Someone's to say, well, so-and-so is really known for this. So it's weird that Jewish disciples, and we see in the other Gospels, went to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. It's like you being really good at something and finding something better than you and saying, hey, you know what? Teach me how to do this. It'd be like big John Christina going to somebody and saying, teach me how to cut hair, even though he's cut hair for decades. You'd say, that's weird. That guy you're asking must be really, really good. And what Jesus has is the panoply of names to, to, to give to the disciples. And you can imagine he's waited for them to ask this probably the entire time he'd been with them. He's probably thought, oh my gosh, these guys just knew how to pray, talk to my dad, it'd be so great. And, and they're not, gonna, you know, he could use Yahweh, Jehovah, all the names of God. And he says, here, you want to talk to my dad, do this. First say, our Father. Just a few verses before, and so what he's pushing on them in their anxiety is saying, hey, that's, that's still your Father. Don't be anxious, because you belong to the Creator, It's wrong in your head and it's wrong in your heart. And hey, don't feel bad. Be poor in spirit. Cry out to him. But if you forget, look at the freaking bird in your front yard. He should remind you. So even with the things you and I face, and as I stand at that funeral on Friday, and I wrestle with, how do I preach this passage to you all, let alone to my friend Friday, if I was going to say anything to her about it? 
we come back to the same Jesus who's saying God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we, and we believe that. And Jesus, the same one who says, I am the resurrection and the life and we believe that. And the same, one who's, the same Messiah who says, let the little children come to me and we believe that is saying, don't be anxious. Remember, come back. Worship my dad because we got you. So what he is doing in this sermon is calling you and I not to a sort of a t add a new club to your resume, but to throw yourself in to a fully different life with a fully different king. And he's saying you can worship here or you can worship here. And in this life, trust me, I, I have a different timeline. The future you can't see but is going to inbreak in the world. And you, you are going to have trouble. It's really important to see in this paragraph. Jesus is not saying, hey, don't worry, you won't have trouble. Or that tomorrow won't have trouble. He's, he's being honest with you and I. There will be trouble. And you and I will bear up under it. And God will be with us in it. And we'll do it together. And again, I'm going to give you a couple suggestions on how to bear trouble in a minute. But I so appreciate the commentator who was like, there's going to be trouble. For Christians, you're going to have trouble. And if we're honest, probably no matter how old you are in this room, you know that's true. Think about if you really wanted to, to get the degree you got. And you thought, or you just really, I really want to just get through college. How many of us are senior college? Like, I just want to graduate. Why? Because then we won't have trouble. How many of you have had some trouble or anxiety since you graduated college? How many of you thought, you know, if I could get married, first of all, you probably thought, if I can get married, I'll never feel lonely. Just file that away. Those of you who think that, that's not true. It's another sermon. If I can get married, I'll never, and I'll never have trouble. Raise your hand. If in getting, I'm not saying in the marriage. That's another, another sermon. But in your marriage, you've gotten married, and you realize, oh, you, as a married couple, like, gosh, we still have trouble. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you thought, you know, if we could just have kids, never have trouble. Or my kids won't be trouble. Raise your hands if your kids sometimes are trouble. Don't do two hands, it's not right. Can I raise your hands if you thought, if I make that varsity team, or I get a summer job, or I get into whatever college you want to get into, or I have a boyfriend or girlfriend, I'll never have trouble. Raise your hand if you thought Johnny could just get his act together and get us back in person in church. None of us would have trouble. Right? <laughs> Sorry. We did take a screenshot of all of you at that point. It's so tempting, right? You and I, are, we're going to have trouble, but you're not going to have it alone. And you belong to the king, and he will send his son to die for us. And I cannot be anxious because God loves me and holds me in his hand. So I want to give four quick encouragements to finish, trying to be practical. If you're here this morning and you are, you're bear, barely bearing the anxiety and discouragement you're feeling, can I just say, can, let's get help. Let's tell somebody. Let's tell Johnny or Corky. Let's tell your small group leader. Let's 
find a counselor to meet with. Let's not sit alone. Because remember, Jesus is preaching to a crowd of people, and they went into this together. None of them expected to be following Jesus by themselves. They're all invited into a family, into a group, into a mission, and into the church. People are swamped with anxiety right now. So do not think you're the only one, and do not think you'll make it on your own, because you won't. So let's get help. Second, let's get clear. Let's, let's teach and remind each other how we're doing, right? And I've used this acronym here, I think, before. I want you to think about this week. Again, this is a good conversation starter. HALT. Some of you may have heard this before. Am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Am I tired? Because part of what helps when we feel anxious is to get some space from it and remove, just to be able to step back. You might need to do that with somebody else. Ask somebody, ask me how I'm doing. And then you walk through, am I hungry, am I angry, am I lonely, am I tired? Because we all, in those spaces, can make dumb decisions, or we can freak out, or we could not have perspective. And those are signs. If you're angry, what are you sad about? Remember, we talked about sad, mad, bad. If you're mad, you're probably sad about something. If you're really lonely, why? We're, let's talk about that. So let's get help. Let's get clear. Third, let's make a plan. Um, I have a, a son in college and a son who will be in college in a year. And one of my commitments this year is to help him understand and handle money better. Because it's something I wish somebody would have done better with me when I, before I went to college. And much of what in this passage really does revolve around money. There's a lot of drivers for money. And there's begs a lot of questions, particularly do we live at our means, beneath our means, or beyond our means? And so often many of us live beyond our means because, again, nobody selling me a car or marketing to me at Tyson's is going to first ask, hey, before you come here in Eddie Bauer, are you going to live within your means if you buy something here? Never had anybody ask me that, as kind as they look. So can we get smart about money? Can, can people, I'm sorry Rod's not here. I love to give Rod things to do when I'm here. Um, could we work with, with the church, not the future of the church, the church, the people in their middle school years and high school years to make them really good about money, to help them worship the right way so they learn how to make and save and spend. So when they're like 22, 23, 25, those muscles are battle-tested because you'll free them when they sit in churches wherever they, God sends them and puts them because they'll be able to say, I don't need to worry as much. Can we get smart? Can we create a lot of really deep, Jesus-loving ants that we graduate and send off to college? And if you guys, you guys should ask. Make me good at money. Help me get good at money. There are people here, I bet there are financial planners in here who could do a three-week class or six weeks with y'all, and you would be so far ahead of your peers. And can we dream about how making a plan and using your gifts and tying righteousness in might benefit and bless the kingdom. Like, what if there's a, a, a high school student here who's really good at science and wants to study agricultural science and goes to one of our schools and comes up with an idea to, to help the poor and food, and they, they use that desire for righteousness to bless the world, and maybe they even get rich doing it, and we have helped them know how to give, how to not be tied to money, how to bless the world. Let's make a plan. Let's get help. Let's get clear. And let's make a plan. And then lastly, let's get others. What struck me again and again as I looked at this passage was 
the reason I can hold fast to its truth, even in my own anxiety, is I've watched God show up in my life and the life of others. And what God is doing is making witnesses, right? Believers, citizens of heaven. And in this room are witnesses who would echo what I said and could say over and over again, this is what I saw God do. And you all need them. No matter your age, you need to know, wait, I know God showed up that time for Rod Thompson, and I know God showed up for John Richmond and Linda, and I know God has shown up for Sarah, and boy, that helps me when I'm wondering, will God show up for me, and I'm anxious. So I want to give you a few quick stories to finish. The first is I want to return to a story I talked about last time. Remember, I talked about needing a car by we had doubled our drivers, and we had the same number of cars in February. And how I remember talking about going to an estate sale, and God had to grow my own spiritual formation because he, he gave the car to this woman, you know, like just in front of me. So fast forward several months, lots of prayer to the Lord. Again, not just about cars, but Lord, are you here am I in COVID trying to find a car? If you've tried to find a car, you know it's really hard right now. Prices are going up. It's a, a seller's market, not a buyer's market. And I'm like, okay. I kind of reached the end of my rope, and we thought we had the cars we needed. And out of nowhere, this sweet young couple in our church is like, hey, we were wondering if you could use one of our cars because somebody gave us a car who's going overseas. And we have this older Honda, and we know that you have teenagers, and we just thought, could you use this car? What do you think I said? No. I said, yes. So for one whole dollar, I had a car, which was cheaper than the car I would have got at the estate sale. Now, is it a Bentley? No. No. God did not give me a Bentley because that would not have been good for my soul. But I have a Honda for my sons to drive that needed a couple repairs and fell, literally fell from the sky because I belong to the Creator. And if I consider the Honda Civic in my front yard. I don't need to look at the bird that day. Before my senior year of college, I was going to live off campus for the first time with a buddy of mine, and we had nothing like stereo, chair, table, dishes, stuff like that. So I actually made a list of, Lord, it would be really great to go to school and have these things. And no lie, like 40 days later, everything on that list for zero dollars. Now, again, it wasn't brand new. A couple across the street got married. They'd been living in my parents' neighborhood. They'd been living together, so they had stuff. So they took the stuff they had and just gave it to us. An old stereo, like circa 1984 stereo. And on and on and on. Now, because of that story, when I'm doubting whether God will provide for my kids... I can consider the lilies of the field. I went to our mechanic, back to cars, all my stories this summer about cars, and to drop a car off to get fixed, and there was a guy there that I know from another church, and he's like, hey, he said, hey, I want to tell you this story. I said, sure. So he and I stood there, and he told me, this is a widower. Last time I'd been in touch with him, his wife had passed away about three or four years ago of cancer, really, really dramatic cancer. He had three daughters, so he's just catching me up on how the daughter is doing, and he said, hey, you know, just the other day, I got a job. Works for the government, had been out of work for a while. And I said, how? He said, well, I interviewed for this one job. And the person who I interviewed really liked it, but they had somebody in-house that really fit better and they needed to look at them first. So I was like, okay, well, at least I tried. And they said, hey, 
answer your phone. In the next hour, answer your phone. He's like, okay. So he gets his phone call. Hello? Guy says, hi. He says, hey, can you tell me a little bit about where you are and your work experience? And the guy, so he starts to talk to this other guy he's never met, never interviewed with. And the guy looks and goes, well, I, I, when could you start at work? And this friend of mine says, well, I, tomorrow. <laughs> and he says, okay, good. I want to give you a job. I want to hire the, the woman you interviewed with really liked you, even though she didn't have a job, and sent me your resume and said, hey, I really think this guy is who you're looking for. And I looked at your resume, you're perfect, and I just want to touch base with you, and can you start next week? Don't be anxious. You belong to the creator. And what I want for you are those kind of stories for yourself. I, hope, I want my stories to encourage people, but I really want your stories for you. So you can look and say, I know God did this. One last story, and then I'll pray. One of our most um, favorite energetic professors in seminary is a guy named Ricky Watts. Ricky's from Australia. Passionate New Testament scholar. And what I most remember about Ricky are these crazy stories. He's a Pentecostal charismatic from Australia. Had crazy stories in class. And he told a story once to us because we're all in seminary and barely making it. And he said, you know, when I was in grad school at Cambridge, my wife and I, we, we literally, we ran out of money. And we knew God had put us there. We knew we were supposed to be doing PhD work. We felt called, but literally we paid our fees and we just had no money. And in our apartment outside of Cambridge, there was a, a cupboard. And so we went and did some things for the day and we came back. We opened that cupboard and there was food. There were a couple bags of food in that cupboard out of nowhere. And it happened again and again. It happened over their years several times in seminary. That food would just show up. They never knew from who. And when they, his wife got work and she was able to make, help them out, stopped happening. Don't be anxious. You belong to the king. Let's pray. Dear God, you can look at all of us and see the things we're carrying and see right past our defenses or the things we might even be ashamed to be anxious about. And you know my own things, the things that burden me and pin me to the ground right now. And we cry as we have this whole series of our need for you and of our poverty of spirit. And we want to be people who are apart and changed by being your children and to be in your kingdom and to trust you and your promises. And even now, together, we, we offer to you, we sort of loop our arms around the room together and bring to you one another and the burdens that we're carrying that are real. We we don't want to forget who you are, and we don't want to worship other things. And we have real needs, like daily bread, or help with a subject in school we're not good at, or a difficult work situation, or concerns over children who are struggling. We know that you encourage us to cast our cares on you, so we cast them to you, but boy, we need you to catch them.
and to catch us. Pray particularly this week that you would give men and women in this room stories like I've just shared. That when they gather next Sunday, they would be able to spill out how you have done great things for them. For them. So they can stand more resolutely with their arms raised in worship to you. In your name, amen.